it was let's put on this facade and that is people pleasing, right? And I think we oftentimes get this notion that people pleasing is the shy, meek person who doesn't have a backbone. It's not. It's any time you are invested in the opinions of others and that trumps what you think. That was today's guest, Amy E. Smith. She is from The Joy Junkie. Today, we are talking about some of my favorite topics. You'll hear me talking about how I have struggled with approval seeking. And along with that goes people pleasing and boundaries, which is all in this conversation. We start with a discussion around people pleasing and some of the not so common ways it can manifest. Not every people pleaser is a pushover. How you can set boundaries without being a dick. How being worried about what other people think of you takes you away from your truth. How important it is to get in touch with the motivation behind our behavior how we teach people how to treat us through what we choose to tolerate, and so much more. Amy talks about setting boundaries and her three-step model for how to approach those in a meaningful way. There is a lot covered in here, so get out your notepads and stay tuned. I will add that this is an adult-only listen. So if you've got kiddos in the car, I would make sure you have headphones for this one so that some language and themes, eh, not for them. Without further ado, let's get into the conversation. Welcome to Here to Thrive. I'm your host, Kate Snowwise. This is a podcast for people who are ready to step up, and live a happier life. It's for those of us who are dedicated to understanding ourselves and getting the best that we can out of this thing called life. It's a mix of psychology and modern spiritual thought, always with a focus on practical advice so that you can take it back and apply it to your own life. I don't believe we're here to merely survive. I truly believe we're here to thrive. So let's get going. Amy, thank you for coming on here to thrive. I'm so excited to connect. I want to know more about people pleasing. And when I was looking into you as a guest for the show, I was like, I have yet to talk to anyone about people pleasing. And it's one of my favorite topics. Oh, perfect. Then we are going to have a blast because you probably won't be able to get me to shut up about it. Starting uh, with a little bit of your story, are you like me? Are you a recovering people pleaser? Absolutely. Absolutely. So I'll, I'll give you a little bit of uh, some context of how that manifested my, my life. So I grew up in an extremely conservative, born-again Christian family, which was extremely dogmatic. My father had a master's in divinity and a doctorate in ministry, so he was not fucking around. <laughs> <laughs> he, he went whole hog on this. Yeah, he did. Yeah, and it did lots of missions work between him and my mom. So, I mean, it was 
very much a part of the culture that I was around always church groups or Christian school. I went to a private school my whole life. So I was very much in this extremely conservative bubble to the point where it was almost militant in some ways. And my parents were amazing. I mean, they were really beautiful humans, but they were also skewed by the dogma that they subscribed to. And another sort of bit of context by all kind of outside opinions, I was the quote, good kid. I have two younger brothers who ended up having some real difficult time with, with the law and doing some jail time, never went to school, have kind of struggled. And then I was the kid who <laughs> juxtaposed against that, started working when I was 14, put myself through college, got married young, moved out of the house and was very self-sufficient. So this whole idea of speaking up for myself and th this investment in what other people think was very tethered to my family of origin, particularly to my parents. And it kind of boiled uh, to a head in 07 when my father passed away. And at the time, I was kind of transitioning from makeup artistry, which had been my career for about a decade, into personal development and coaching and, and what I do now. So I knew without a shadow of a doubt that for his service, I was definitely going to be speaking to the crowd. And I was also going to be doing his makeup for his mm. viewing. It's considered mortuary makeup. So yeah, I'm going to just do some makeup on my dead dad here. Don't mind me. And so I had a very taxing day to say the very least, not to mention that I was speaking to a crowd of hundreds because he had such an impact in this world. And everybody was coming up to me and doing all of the Christian dogmatic things. Let oh. me pray with you. Let me put my hands on you. And just a lot of stuff that I didn't subscribe believe. to. Yeah. I didn't, I didn't believe in it. And at, at that point, I was very much twisting and contorting and not really showing what I, who I really was in that arena. So this is kind of when it had boiled because at that point, up until that point, my husband, bless his heart, I would always tell him like, okay, please don't talk about gay rights. Please don't talk, bring up abortion. Don't talk about Howard Stern. Don't talk about South Park. Don't like, just don't, <laughs> just don't. shush, hide all of those pieces of yourself, please. Exactly. Exactly. It was let's put on this facade and that is people pleasing. Right. And I think we oftentimes get this notion that people pleasing is the shy, meek person who doesn't have a backbone. It's not. It's any time you are invested in the opinions of others and that trumps what you think, right? So this was very much the scenario for me. So here I've had this extremely taxing day. I get home to my mom's house and she finds it to be the most opportune time to tell me that it feels as though my father and her have failed as parents. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> so I'm going, are you kidding me? I put myself through school. I've been working since I was 14. I just did makeup on your dead husband. My father spoke to this crowd of hundreds and you are lumping me into this category of a, a failure as a child because I'm simply quote, not walking with the Lord. And the only thing I could really muster in that moment, as I said, I really don't think you should say that to a child. <laughs> and she said, well, that's just how I feel. And I'll tell you what, that was the, that was the impetus for 
changing the trajectory in my career, in what I was vocal about, because that was the very clear depiction that there are going to be ultimatum situations. There are going to be times where it's either I choose to make you happy or I choose to make me happy. And ultimately, I realized if push comes to shove, I'm going to choose me. I'm going to choose me. And the the immediate thereafter was extremely combative. It was almost like I crossed over this line of believing that my voice mattered and I just became extremely adversarial. I wanted to talk about really polarizing topics. I, I almost became malicious mm. and it wasn't until I worked through that and had to clean up my mess quite a few times that I realized that you can actually speak up for yourself. You can actually ask for a divorce or ask your adult children to move out of the house or tell your family that you don't believe in the religion you were raised in. You can do all of those things with the utmost grace, kindness, compassion, mm. and love. You don't have to be a malicious dick. I feel like that would be such a common reaction and it's almost like that rubber band effect like you've been holding it in for so long and holding back that as soon as you let those floodgates open it kind of comes rushing out with uncontrollably almost it definitely did and I don't know at as if at that time I was quite <laughs> very astute in emotional intelligence and understanding anger being kind of a secondary emotion. And there's usually a primary emotion underneath that. And it wasn't until I was doing a lot of work with my own coach that I realized that I was harboring a shit ton of anger and resentment and rage towards my, towards my mom, just for the choices of how they brought me up. And once I was able to contend with that and realize that it was exactly what I needed to be doing the work that I'm doing in this world, I was able to usher in a lot more compassion there. And then to, to start tweaking my approach to it. So that is hugely a part of what I do now. It's, it's very much twofold. It's the internal belief that you matter, period, that your voice matters, that your wants, opinions, and needs matter. And that's an internal process for sure. And then there's the external piece of, okay, now that I'm confident, how do I communicate that? How, what does that look like to establish a boundary, to say no, to decline invites, to deal with family obligations? What does that actually sound like in words? And that's one of the things that I pride myself on so much now is the ability to have people say, okay, I need to end this with a client. How do I tell them? Or I need to tell my parents I'm not coming for Thanksgiving. How do I say it? You know, or this person at the office is really offensive to me. What do I say? How do I address this? But all of those things can't come out of your mouth typically unless you believe that they have value to begin with. Yeah. So good. So coming back to how we would define people pleasing or how you view it, you mentioned then that it is being overly invested in the opinions of others. Can we talk a little bit more about how you view it as kind of a topic? I think it, the semantics really matter. And I do have plenty of people in my community, or even I just had a student mention this to me yesterday, where they don't necessarily identify as a people pleaser. Like that word, they don't go, oh yeah, that's me for sure. But if I say, how much do you care what your boss thinks? They will say, oh my gosh, so much. Or my partner, I can't 
ever not be flawless because what will they think? That is making sure somebody else views you in a specific way or that their opinion in some way matters more than your opinion of yourself. We're putting the barometer of success externally. We're saying my boss's opinion matters more. My partner's opinion matters more, more than mine. And we're creating this hierarchical effect where we say, I always come second. And that will then permeate all of your choices of behavior. So if you're in, you know, a helping profession like you and I, and somebody wants a session and you can't accommodate it in your calendar and feeling a sense of guilt in that situation, which guilt is not warranted at all Mm because you've done nothing wrong. And we take that on as it's my responsibility to make that person happy. Even that, that is a people pleasing behavior. Yeah, absolutely. I often think about when I look back on my own history and how I started to undo my natural tendency towards people pleasing and deprioritizing my own needs went with that very much like you're saying for me. Uh, It was that I had this light bulb moment where I realized that the reason I was so busy trying to make other people happy was because I desperately needed their approval to feel okay in myself. Yes, absolutely. Approval addiction is a byproduct of people pleasing yep. because we are saying, I'm not, essentially what you're saying is I'm not valuable. I'm not worthy unless these people approve of me. And that, that takes different forms unless I'm loved. So some people it's in intimate partnerships. Like I have to be partnered at all times because that means I'm lovable. Or even if it's a egregious relationship to be a part of. So we make up all these conclusions like I must overachieve. I must be viewed as an authority in my career field in order to be valuable. Instead of saying, I want to be valued in my career field because that brings me fulfillment. And I know that I'm worthy whether or not that's the case. I actually use a, an analogy. I would love to share it with you. Yes. Uh, or sort of a metaphor. So it's this idea that we are intrinsically worthy already and enough just by virtue of being human. So if you can think about yourself as, as a beautiful home, a beautiful house, and all, you have all these different intricate rooms, and we have the rooms that we show to everybody else, and then we've got some of them that are messy and we don't want anyone to see, but the structure is already there, it's valuable, it's whole. And then we have all of our human experience that happens outside the house, right? So we have somebody who comes and they drop a giant pile of shit on our door, door, you know, our doorpost. And we have the option at that moment to either absorb that and take that into the house. That is like people hurling guilt trips at you. That's mom saying, well, I'm just your mom. I would have loved for you to have called me, you know, handing you this giant pile of shit. Or it's the person saying, I don't want to see you anymore. I don't want to date any longer. or I want a divorce. It is the rejection, the criticisms, the, the things that carry emotional pain for us. So what we often do is instead of handing that pile of shit back and say, oh, I'm currently not accepting that. I'm going to need you to hold on to that. Most of the time we take it into our house and we go, this must mean that my house stinks. This must mean that I'm shitty. 
And it really doesn't. It just means you're contending with something that carries an emotion that hurts. It's just sad. It's just painful. It doesn't have to mean you suck or you're awful or not lovable or not worthy. And then conversely, we have people who, who drop off beautiful gifts on our front porch. Now, does the a beautiful gift like honors, accolades, accomplishments, receiving love, the things that do warrant beautiful human emotion, does that now make the house valuable? No, it's an addition. It's a gift. It's something that you choose to bring into your house and relish. It doesn't change the structure. It doesn't now make you worthy. So the idea is that what we are doing in our life is we are walking around enough already. We are worthy already. And everything else is just the human experience that feels a specific way. You get rejected, it hurts. You get compliments, it feels amazing. But none of those affect the structure of the house. Mm. That's a, I, I love the way of looking at it like that. That is uh, something I'm going to definitely ponder. <laughs> I think back to my people pleasing and like you said at the start, often people think people pleasers are the ones that are just complete pushovers that just, you know, run around with no opinions of their own, uh, trying to make everybody else happy. I feel like I went through a period of that in my very early twenties, but as I moved forward in my progression, my people pleasing started to show up in some of the ways we're talking about more now you know that that desire to achieve and be loved by others and it was less about being a pushover but I I certainly was a pushover at one point and it was kind of this this almost like uh upward trajectory as I made my way out of my people pleasing tendencies but man almighty do I still need to be aware of them right right well I think you're pointing to something really interesting Kate and that is that as we evolve as humans so does our inner critic. So does the things that we contend with and our triggers will start to change. I used to be extremely triggered by things around beauty and body image. And that is not nearly as potent or as triggering now. And I kind of feel like I've had that under wraps, but mine has changed more so around business and looking a specific way in the online sphere. And I have to really stop myself and, and look at what is the motivation behind this behavior? Is it to create impact? Is it to create uh, a resource for people to live a genuinely better life? Or is this me posturing? Mm -hmm. Is this me checking to see if people like me? And there's nothing more humbling than having an online presence where people will tell you if they (laughs) (laughs) they're not 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 fans and that's okay and that so that's been a huge lesson in in just relinquishing that control and knowing that I'm not for everybody and that's beautiful because they're not all for me either and recognizing that it's like having a gluten intolerance I don't have to spend all this time hating gluten and focusing on gluten it's just going oh that doesn't work for my body cool. What does, how can I honor Amy? So that's kind of how I view it with haters. Like, Oh, you just don't work for my system. No problem. Bye. 
Yeah, we're not we're not in alignment with each other. It's funny you say that because yes, we're both in the online space and man almighty people, this world is bizarre. And I've become more resilient and and conscious and aware myself in the years I've been in business. But I still have a reminder on my computer right in front of me right now, Amy, and it's a little pulled off uh post-it note that says it's not about you. And it's referring to me as in none of the work I do is about me. It's not about me somehow getting an award or an approval or I don't do it for that. But I constantly need to remind myself because sometimes you can get sucked into, especially and other people will be in the same sphere, social media and numbers and silly things like that. And it doesn't mean that you are any less or more worthy. That's right. None none of this does. And I think one of the the biggest obstacles with that is just wrapping your head around that as being a new truth. And it's interesting because I do a, a whole module on it with my with my students and they all sort of have this epiphany of holy shit, I can just choose <laughs> to believe that I'm worthy. And I'm like, yeah, because all the other things were just choices too. You're the one who just chose that you're not enough right? We may have had that compounded by somebody, an authority figure or something like that, who, you know, a parent who told you, you weren't valuable. Some of us unfortunately have gone through that and that's not, that's not acceptable, but it also doesn't have to be set in stone. You we're malleable. We're moldable. We're, we have brain plasticity. We can change how we think we can change what we believe. And when we realize, like when I went to coaching school and found out that there was this inner critic and there was this bullshit that I had bought into that I could change, I was like, what? This is magic. Why didn't anybody tell me this? So what I want everybody to hear is whatever your current reality is right now, whether it's twisting and molding and trying to make everybody love you, that was a choice that you probably made subconsciously yeah. in order to, to survive. Now, we can start to consciously and subconsciously change that. And it's powerful. I just, that's how it happened for me. Honestly, my people pleasing, I feel like, yes, there was this progression I'm talking about here, but really it was like a light bulb moment when I when I understood that the reason I was behaving the way I did was to seek the approval of others. It was like, okay, well, I don't have to do that anymore. Right. Right. Well, and that's one of the reasons why I'm always saying my students will probably say like, God, she always says awareness is the win. Awareness is the win until we really are clear about what's happening, what the obstacle is, what's going on. We can't remedy it. And for so many people, we get stuck in the bullshit lie of, well, I could just never say that to my mom or, oh, I could never tell that to my husband. He would be destroyed. I could never say that at work. I could, And it's like, no, no, you can. You just have chosen not to. You've bought into this belief that you're not capable, nor are you worthy. And those two things don't have to be true. They don't have to be true. Coming back to your analogy of someone putting shit on your doorstep. <laughs> I'm assuming that that wall, that front door is kind of like a boundary and you get to decide whether or not you let that shit just walk on in. Or if you say, no, thank you. The shit is not coming into the house. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. It's how you choose to engage with hardship. So one of the things that 
I think is really extremely important in personal development is to let people know that it's not a magic pill of once you learn some of these tools or tactics, you're never going to experience hardship again. That's not the deal. You're still going to have fear. It's a primitive response. You're still going to contend with challenges at your workplace or with your partner or whoever. It's how you choose to contend with the hardship. That's what where personal development comes in. So instead of seeing that shit on your doorstep and going, my mom must be right. I am totally selfish or, oh my gosh, what am I thinking? Or, and we absorb it and we go, oh, I should feel guilty or I should have that obligation. It's in that moment of going, wait a minute, how do I want to contend with this opposition? And one of the things that I love to do is to look at okay, here's what's being presented as their truth. Here's what's mom's truth. Here's boss's truth. Here's my partner's truth. Now, what about that is true or not true for me? And separating yourself from that instead of going, well, they must have an appoint. Or if I feel hurt, that must mean I'm not valuable. And so a lot of times we collapse that but I definitely think there's a boundary opportunity here. And I really define a boundary as, as si quite simply something that you're no longer going to tolerate. Mm, something that you are no longer going to tolerate. I feel like that's a point that just needs to be highlighted because I think a lot of people are talking about boundaries these days, but some of these concepts can get too complex or become yeah. overly complex. And I love that simple definition. If you'd like, I can share with you, I have sort of like a little three-step process yes. to establishing boundaries, if you're interested. Definitely. <laughs> cool. So because I do think I'm with you where I think things can get really esoteric and spiritual, and I like to bring it tactically. Okay. What does that look like? Give me some steps. So if you need to establish a boundary, or if you're curious where that might be in your life, the first place to look is what do I chronically and habitually complain about? Most of the time, the stuff that we complain about, we're not complaining to the person who could actually rectify the issue. So if we're mad at our boss, our partner gets an earful. If we're mad at our partner, our therapist or our bestie gets the earful. So we're usually complaining, we're vocal just to the wrong person. So that's your place to start looking. Here's some areas where I might need to start speaking up, where a boundary might be in order. I think about even like the boundaries with ourselves, because I'm thinking, I hear a lot of women saying, I'm exhausted. Well, where is the boundary that you've crossed with yourself? Where are you not taking care of yourself? It's a, such a good question. Absolutely. Well, and then if we're talking about toleration, you know, what are you tolerating? <laughs> and what do you no longer need to tolerate? Sometimes it's taking on a bunch of shit that you don't have the bandwidth for. There's a, a brilliant book on burnout that's out right now by Emily Nagowski and Amelia Nagowski. And they talk about this concept of human giver syndrome, which is what many women fall into of I've got to do all the things for all the people all of the time, or I'm not valuable. That's what we collapse it to mean. So yes, boundaries with self. So start looking at, are there things in my own life that I am tolerating that are infringing on my health? So is that number two? So is number one what I complain about? And number two, what am I tolerating? No, ah. those are actually just sort of precursors. So, cool, got ya. <laughs> so with the actual boundary, 
if you're going to establish a boundary, the first is to decide, to decide on the exact parameters of the boundary. So what, what this, what's important about this is the specificity. So I'll give you an example that came up uh, years ago with a friend of mine. She had a situation with her in-laws where her mother-in-law would routinely say, if you leave the kids here, you know, or if we're babysitting, we're going to go have them baptized into our religion. Oh. And oh. which is extremely disrespectful and offensive. And so my poor friend is just going, we, you know, I could really use the babysitting help and I want them to have a relationship with their grandparents, but I also don't want them to be indoctrinated into something I don't believe in. So here's a very specific boundary. Now, if we hadn't created the specifics around it, it might sound something like, hello, mother-in-law, I'd really like you to be more respectful of our choices. Well, that's not very linear. That's not specific. That's not, she. there's no real like, oh, here you crossed a boundary. But if you said, here's my request. My request is that you refrain from mentioning anything about your particular spiritual preference, that you don't mention anything related to baptism, and that if there are any questions raised about that with my children, that you defer it to us and say, well, we have our own beliefs. We would love to share them with you when you're of age. But right now, your mom has requested that you learn that stuff from her, right? Very, very specific. It's clear if they breach the boundary or not. Mm. Similar to telling your partner, oh, I'd really like a lot of romance. It's like, well, what the hell does that mean? One partner thinks it's sex. The other one thinks it's date nights. The other one thinks it's doing the laundry. <laughs> you know, it's like, it could be all over the place of how we interpret what respect looks like, what romance looks like, what uh, any of those things mm. could be defined completely differently. So the first is decide and getting really, really specific. The second process is to deliver. And this is pretty much, I'd say like 95% inflection and tone of voice, because a majority of what we say, we say through our paraverbal skills and our nonverbal skills through our body language and our tone of voice. And we, I, I can't tell you, Kate, how many times people have said, I have told my mom that I have told my partner that I have told my colleague that. And I'm like, okay, how, how did you say it? Well, I was kind of passive aggressive or, you know, I was a little bit snarky or I may have yelled and I may have thrown a shoe at the same time. And I'm like, well, that doesn't count because they cannot hear you when you're screaming and yelling or when you're being snarky. So this whole process of delivering, I mean, I could talk about that for hours, but really what I would say is watch your tone of voice and enter into the conversation from a place of vulnerability and softness. So two best ways to do that are gratitude and intention. So to say, hey, mother-in-law, hey, thank you so much for, for taking some time to chat with me. I, I really just wanted to share some stuff with you that's been on my heart and on my mind. So you're entering in with gratitude, softness, vulnerability, or you can use intention. You know, my intention of, of chatting with you today is not to create awkwardness, not to rock the boat but really just for us to be cohesive. My intention is for us to just be as honest and as authentic as possible. Oh, I'm like buying in. It's like, whatever you want to say now, Amy, I'm listening. <laughs> it's very different than, you know what? We need to talk. We need to talk, right? <laughs> yeah, it's so different. I mean, my guards are down when you say it in a 
soft and gentle way and my my guard and my defensiveness is immediately up when you come at me kind of meh right and I mean we know that vulnerability will breed more vulnerability if you think about let's say you're driving along in a car and somebody cuts you off and, or you cut somebody off, let's say you cut somebody off and they turn to you and they're like, fuck you, what do you do? Your instinct is to mimic that emotion is to go right back at them. Your instinct is not to go, you know, tell me more about what I did wrong. I would like to kind of tweak my driving. You know, let me hear you. No, we retaliate. So if you embody vulnerability going into a conversation, if you're softer, if you enter in with gratitude or compassion for what the other person might feel, you are far more likely to elicit that same quality from the other person. It's not guaranteed, but it's just more likely. So we've got, we've got decide, and that's very much about the specifics. Then you're delivering. And then perhaps the hardest part is the enforcement. Oh, yes. (laughs) No one likes to have to enforce a boundary. I'm even thinking with my children, Amy, about how much I'm like, do you really have to? I really have to put you in time. Please don't make me put you in time out. (laughs) Right? I know. And, And what happens is we get so excited that we actually have the courage and the confidence to actually deliver the boundary and get the words out of your mouth. And then the person goes and tests the boundary and you're like, God damn it. And we think we already said it. So we're good. Nope. Because we teach people how to treat us largely through what we choose to tolerate. Oh, this is just sit with that people for a second. (laughs) You are not done at deciding what you need and then delivering the message. You have to expect that you will have to enforce it. People test boundaries. Wow. Think about with your kids, Kate. Oh, like if they're right. Do they take it at face value that you really meant it the first time? No. (laughs) (laughs) That would be really nice if they did, Amy, but no, no, they do not. (laughs) So you have to keep going. Now, with children, it's a a little bit different and it might be a little more repetitive than with, you know, a family member or something like that. But this is an internal piece. So what I would say, depending on the severity, depending on the relationship, you want to kind of decide in your own mind, how many chances am I going to give them? How many times am I going to underline this boundary before I institute a repercussion? And I think we, we have a, a, a pretty good grace period there. So it would sound something like this if we're using the anecdote that I shared earlier. The mother-in-law says something to the kid about baptism, let's say. And so you go to your mother-in-law and you say, hey, you know, I was just talking to Johnny and he mentioned something that that you brought up some stuff around the baptism. And, you know, I am sure it's really challenging for you to to understand that we're coming from a completely different place because I, I believe wholeheartedly that that you are 100 percent invested in your faith. And I fully respect that. But what I shared with you before about sort of those boundaries, some of those hard lines in the sand, I meant that. I really did mean that. And so I'm going to ask you again to please refrain from fill in the blank, right? So then you get to say, hey, if it happens again, hey, 
I've, I've mentioned this to you a couple of times and here's what's happening for me. It seems as though, even though I've been really forthright with you, you're, it seems that it doesn't matter to you at all. And that lands for me as just total disrespect. And I'm sure that's not what you intend, but that's how it feels over here. What's happening for you over there? Depending on if the relationship is collaborative or not. Sometimes it's just, this can't happen again. Bye. Um, But if it's collaborative, you can enter into a conversation, but then you get to decide now, do I deliver an ultimatum? Listen, mother-in-law, if it, you know, I really hate to do this, but If that happens again, just to really underscore how important this is to us, we're going to have to find alternatives for the babysitter for babysitting, or we'll have to have you come to us, or, uh, I'm going to have to leave the, leave the house or hang up the phone, or, you know, you have to put the line in the sand. Here's the repercussion. I've asked multiple times with kindness and grace And it feels as though it's falling on deaf ears. So that whole ultimatum piece is completely up to the individual and the individual circumstance and relationship. But we need to decide because at one point, like the situation I was sharing with you at the very top of our conversation with something that is as polarizing as religion, politics, how you want to raise your children, what you want to eat or consume, how you feel about animal rights, all of that stuff is ultimatum status for a lot of people where, okay, family, boss, whoever, if it comes down to, I either make you happy or I make me happy, I choose me. Mm. Wow, so many powerful points in there, Amy. So that's the good way to do it. Just so we're (laughs) really clear, what does it look like when you're being a dick? Oh, this is great. That's a great question. No one has ever asked me that. I think a lot of people find out that there's an issue with something and they typically go one of two ways. And we can kind of look back at this as primitive fight or flee. We either become aggressive and combative and kind of yell, handle it verbally, or we become incredibly passive. We sweep it under the rug and it has a manifestation somewhere else. Either we blow up at somebody else or it manifests as illness. I mean, it's not always that extreme, but we know scientifically that we cannot simply negate and ignore emotion. It will come out somehow. So with this situation, I think it could be something like finding out that your mother-in-law said something about church or something like that, picking up the phone and you know that I have said, don't do that. Or there's also the, uh, this one I see a lot in couples and that is, well, if you didn't do it this way, I wouldn't have to be a dick. I wouldn't have to raise my voice. I wouldn't have, no, you are always responsible for how you behave, period. No matter how egregious the offense, you are always responsible for your behavior. And so one of the things that I like to encourage people to adopt is this idea of, is it understandable how pissed you are? Yes. Is it acceptable to handle things out of anger? No. If you, if somebody cheats on you, is it understandable that you would want to go key their car or burn all their shit on the lawn? Yes, that's understandable. Is it acceptable? No, no. Mm. You can't just make excuses for shitty behavior like that. Oh, don't make excuses for shitty behavior. I like that. I'm going to ask you some of my intermission questions now, Amy. Are you ready? I am. Are you a morning person or a night person? 
Oh, neither. <laughs> so how does neither work? Because you're the first person that's ever said neither, Amy. I'm now completely fascinated. Well, I, I think if I had to go either way, it would probably be morning. I'm more productive in the morning. I used to be a night person, but I have been contending with some uh, adrenal fatigue and things like that. So it's just made my exhaustion a little bit longer than it normally is. So you're a middle um, of the day kind of person currently. Yeah. Yeah. What's on your bedside table at the moment? Uh, let's see. It is a, a brand new candle that I just got to be totally frank, some medicinal cannabis and my lamp. And that's it. I think you're allowed to be frank. I like okay, I like that. It makes it more fun. This is the oh, whole good. point of these questions is that we like get to know you better. Nice. What is your favorite self-care activity? Do you have one? Definitely hypnosis. I am currently studying to be a hypnotherapist and I've fallen in love with the modality. So any type of hypnotic uh, meditation that I can listen to in my headphones is just my favorite. Can you tell me about a book that has touched you or been a favorite at an important point in your life? Oh, yes. So the author who I mentioned earlier, Emily Nagowski, she wrote a book called Come As You Are. And it is, I think it should be mandatory reading for any woman in this world, period, because it's all about sexual intelligence and about understanding a lot of the oppressive patriarchal notions that women have around their bodies, around sexuality. And it has been one of the most liberating reads of my life. And I cannot speak more highly about it. And she talks a lot about the stress cycle and how much that affects us. Even what you were talking about with the exhaustion or the, you know, burnout for myself. So yes, please, everybody read it. It's, so empowering. Uh, and then just to realize that there's so much shit we've been fed that I didn't even, like, I didn't even realize that some women don't even have a hymen. It's not even a thing. It was something completely made up. Virginity isn't even a thing. So I could go on and on and on about it, but <laughs> I, didn't, much it I didn't know that either. Keep us, keep us, you know, down. So I did not yeah. know that some women don't have a hymen. There you go. I just learned something very important right there now. Go. Yes. Wow. Some of the lies we are told. Okay. What is a life lesson that took you a good while to learn? <sighs> I guess I, I really have to say what we've been talking about, you know, and I've shared kind of that whole chronology of truly finding my voice and believing that it matters. And without the way in which I was raised, I don't think I would have ever gone down that path. So I think that that has been probably the most potent. We teach what we most needed to learn, don't we? <laughs> yes. So over and over. <laughs> over and over again. What is one thing in your day that you can't do without? Ooh, my blueberry hibiscus tea. There is this tea that I fell in love with at a local restaurant, figured out I could buy it. And I have it twice a day with some lemon and honey that like natural organic honey that's helps with my allergies from around the area where I live. So that I look forward to it every time I wake up in the morning. And then usually after, after we talk today in the afternoon, I'm going to oh. go make another one. 
Blueberry hibiscus sounds delicious. It's amazing. I'm fascinated now with this last, well, second to last question, because Amy, we've talked about your upbringing. And so this one I think might be loaded for you. I'm interested. Do you believe in a soul? And if so, how would you describe it? Ooh, yeah, I absolutely do. I definitely believe in a soul. I think what it really is, is I think our soul is who we genuinely are and it just needs a physical suit or body to roam around the earth in. And so that's how we get our actual physicality. But the soul, I think, can exist without a body. I mean, that's very much my opinion. I think that's what happens um, at birth. I think a soul finds a vessel to inhabit. And at death, I believe a soul leaves a body and then the cycle continues. But I don't think that really any of that has anything to do with a supreme power, like a god or a, a very specific entity, especially not one that's narcissistic and needs praise all the time. I agree. I totally think we're walking around in avatar kind of suits. I can remember one of my guests said we're walking around in meat suits and I just laughed so hard. I was like, yep, meat suit it is. That's right. That's right. (laughs) What does fulfillment mean to you, Amy? Ooh, fulfillment to me is living my life on purpose and really truly honoring honoring my values, my core values. And I know that that's such a non-sexy way to put it, but I really think the things that we can pinpoint in our life as our core values, the components that must be present in our life in order for us to be the most fulfilled, that's how we access happiness. So for me, it's all across the board. It's things like an element of creativity, adornment and decoration, personal growth, and spirituality. So I have lots of different kind of values, but to me, the the compilation of those is what equates to a fulfilled life. That you just pretty much uh, described my coaching practice. Thank you, Amy. Nice. So it might seem boring, but it's actually freaking amazing, people. Yes, yes, <laughs> I agree. Life changing. Those were my little intermission questions. I want to touch on before we wrap up the interview. You said that all of this people-pleasing and the work that you do, it really comes down to you having found your voice. To me, that sounds like it's intimately tied with the concept of authenticity and showing up in the world as you are. Would you agree with that? I would. I definitely would. And I'm not sure if you see this in your practice, But I almost see an evolution that happens with most people where it's hard for them to really step into who they genuinely are and what they're passionate about and what their values are until they've unpacked all the shit that has gotten in the way. So most of the time when I hear people saying like, I really want to find my voice, I want to find who I am, we have to start with the negative self-talk that's infringing on that. We have to start with the disempowering beliefs that are saying you don't deserve to speak up. So when we can kind of untangle all the shit that's not working, then we can move into, okay, we've let go of that. Now, who do you want to be in this world? Untethered from that old baggage. And yes, it might still pop up, but yeah, I think a lot of that is is finding your footing in these are the things that matter to me. But once we can't get there typically until we've decided 
oh no, I don't have to live according to my family's opinion or my partner or my ex or whoever. And so sometimes it's the dismantling of that first, I think. I totally agree. I kind of think of it as like our authenticity is sitting within us, but we've kind of get all of that dust that settles on that kind of like the windows to the point that it can't get out. So yeah, totally see it the same way. And I do see it in my practice as well. If you were to leave our listeners with just one thought today, Amy, to ponder, to consider, to help them move forward in life, what would it be? To try on the idea of you are responsible for your intention, not your reception. And what I mean by that is we spend so much time worried about our receptivity, how people view us, what they think of us, and we have zero control over that, zero. Only thing that we can control is who we are being, to your point, Kate, your authentic self, and how we're showing up. So regardless what anybody else thinks of you, you are responsible for your intention, not your reception. So much goodness covered in here. As I said throughout, as I used examples of me in my own life, looking for approval outside of myself rather than concentrating on my innate worthiness has certainly been a massive part of my personal growth journey. So these conversations really ring close to home for me. If you want to find the books that Amy mentioned or find out more about Amy, head to the show notes, which you can find in the app that you're listening on, or you can head to my website, thrive.how forward slash podcast 117. Amy's website is thejoyjunkie.com. And if you go over there, you can get your free guide called Stand Up For Yourself Without Being A Dick. Yep, I didn't come up with that question all by myself. Thanks, Amy. Amy also has her own podcast, The Joy Junkie Show. So check that out too. Week after next, I'll be back with some of my thoughts to share with you about how you can live the good life. Until then, beautiful people keep thriving. Just keep thriving. Keep thriving.